most people read somewhere in a throwaway magazine that, you know, when you die, you see a blue light. But what if, what if that doesn't happen? You know, we don't really know what it's like to be dead. So you, your mind tells you you're going to be at peace and you won't have to hurt anymore. But we don't actually know what it's like to be dead because, you know, we conduct research on what it's like to be dead and the dead people don't return the questionnaires. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Today's episode of Better Thinking Podcast is with Kirk Strozel. He is one of the co-founders of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And let me tell you, it was absolutely amazing. We discussed how to go out and assess and treat Clients who are experiencing suicidality, which is what his latest book is about, or a revision of his book. And I'll tell you what, make sure you listen all the way through to the end of the episode because it's, it's really an unorthodox approach, but in some sense I think it should become an orthodox approach in that it's, I think, an exceptional way of how to deal with this matter. So enjoy um, and make sure that you go out and subscribe, thumbs up, share with others, this one's really important that I think we can get others to appreciate what suicidality is like and to take it off the taboo list. Today's podcast is with Kirk Strozel. He is one of the co-founders of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and it's such a pleasure to be able to have Kirk on the show to pick his brain. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his latest um, revision of a book that is in its third edition, which is a clinical manual for assessing uh, assessment and treatment of suicidal patients. And uh, hopefully we have enough time to discuss a little bit about uh, a new book coming out around uh, psychiatry and, um, you know, the ACT world, which is, I think, a, a new space that hasn't been written about before. Um, but uh, before we go into that, Welcome to the show, Kirk. It's a real pleasure to have you on, you know, with, with your vast experience. I'm really excited to get into your head and find out how these works have, you know, come, come to life. Thanks a lot, Nash. I'm glad to be here with you. Let's just jump straight in, as, as I said. Um, tell me a little bit about this first, first book of yours. Most of us have, have gone out in the, in the uh, health world, have, have worked with clients with uh, suicidality, you know, thoughts about suicide. Um, you know, whether it's been repetitive, whether it's been a one-off acute phase, um, it's something that we all deal with as, as, as health providers. Um, and my understanding is in your book, there's a, you know, a particular approach that you and your uh, colleagues have, have come to understand and appreciate has been very helpful that is guided by all of your experience. So I'm just keen to find out more and, 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 and how this come, came about. Well, I think the first thing to realize is how shockingly prevalent suicidal and self-injurious behavior really is. And it's not just in clinical populations. There's lots of research, some of which we did early in the 80s, uh, showing that you know upwards of 10% of the general population have made at least one suicide attempt. 20 to 30% of the people in the population on top of that uh, have seriously contemplated suicide. Um, when you have that kind of prevalence, and of course, completed suicide is 
proportionally speaking, the least likely outcome of self-destructive behavior. It's the, the outlier, so to speak. So, you know, the real public health problem, at least in the United States, is suicide attempting and people going to emergency rooms with suicide ideation re re repeatedly. Uh, the average, at least the last time I checked, the average number of prior suicide attempts in, in hospitalized suicide attempters in the United States is three. So, you know, if, if, if we were doing treatment that was helping, the average prior number of attempts should be zero. <laughs> yes. So, you know, uh, there's a couple of take-home messages that show up again and again in the, the book and the model that we use, and that is uh, it's not at all clear that suicidal behavior, su suicidal thinking, suicide attempting is a sign of mental disorder per se. It may, in fact, be a fairly common way that people try to solve a certain kind of problem. And, of course, if you're from the ACT perspective, you know, the problem that's being solved in suicide attempting or ideating or even killing yourself is you're uh, avoiding your own feelings. So essentially, suicidal behavior is a way of solving a problem of feeling bad inside via an avoidance behavior. And this is also why suicidality is associated with all other kinds of behaviors that we know are, are avoidance behaviors. For example, drug and alcohol abuse. You know, 50% of people who make suicide attempts are intoxicated either with alcohol or drugs at the time. Uh, there's a high overlap between eating disorders and other addictive behaviors and suicidality. And of course, in the ACT model, we view addictive behaviors as, again, another form of avoidance. So the big parting of the ways, I think, is that historically suicidal thinking and behavior has been viewed as a sure sign of mental disorder, sort of mental dysfunction. And, you know, what we are basically saying is don't assume that at all. And instead, think about it as a very practical form of human problem solving. Yes, it is an extreme form of human problem solving, but essentially, when you talk to patients about what would you be solving, what problem would you be solving if you killed yourself, they will very often tell you, I wouldn't have to feel the way I feel right now. They'll just tell you straight up. That's exactly what they say. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, that those exact words I have probably heard, you know, hundreds of times. You know that that you know what what would occur if that you know happened. And and there's this desperate desire to to stop these feelings, to stop these thoughts. You know they they've become unbearable to the client at the time. And so, as you say, the the thought of I know how to switch these off. Um, is one of many solutions. It's, a, it's quite a refreshing way to look at it. Yeah. When I teach people, you know, like general physicians or nurses or just community workers, I say if you learn one thing that will get people to pay attention in a little different way to the conversation, ask them, uh, what problem do you think you would solve if you ended up dead here? And just let's get right to it and call a spade a spade. It's not, um, 
you're wrong for wanting to avoid the way you feel inside. But I don't think patients who are in suicidal crisis actually recognize that they've been kind of taken over by this desire to escape or avoid. You know, I think they just feel bad and they want to do something about it, but there isn't a lot of self-reflective awareness about, so what am I doing here, right? It's not good or bad, what am I doing here, but just functionally speaking, what am I trying to accomplish? And uh, I found with many patients, just getting that conversation going uh, will have an enormous impact on the suicidal crisis because they will actually begin to talk about what they feel Mm -hmm. rather than trying to get away from what they feel. It's interesting that you talk about function. My apologies. So it's interesting that you talk about function because it's often something that the client's not thinking about. They're, they're, they're often thinking about there's something wrong with me. I shouldn't be having these thoughts. Why am I having these thoughts? You know, it must mean that I'm weak or that I can't handle things. I should be coping better. You know, this is what mental illness is because these thoughts are taboo and shouldn't be occurring. And you're kind of asking a different question, which doesn't place judgment. It doesn't ask, you know, any, any um, metric or assessment to be made at that time, but rather just asking, you know, if that were to happen, what problem would that be solving? You're trying to really get, get an appreciation for where the client's at and then for them to tap in to their feelings rather than um, the desperate nature of, 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 you know, the problem solving judgment side. Yeah, I think what we talk about, and this is true in the ACT model in general, is when you try something that doesn't work, that's basically an instruction from your uh, social training, from your mind, instead of the mind saying, oh, I didn't know what to do here, so I gave you an improper instruction. The mind will actually start to say, you didn't try this hard enough. There must, <laughs> there must be even more wrong with you than you thought. You know, strong people, people that are healthy can really go through with this. They can get rid of the way they feel when they don't like the way they feel. And so people get lost in what I call these sort of secondary cat fights. It's like your mind is a cat that keeps coming at you wanting to fight about something other than the real issue here, which is are you going to be willing to feel what you feel? And it's not like um, we're trying to tell people they don't feel bad, that there isn't something uh, desperately painful. And in fact, we want to talk about things being desperately painful. And when you feel desperately bad inside, what you want to do is you want to get out from under that. And that's perfectly normal. That's a natural instinct. The problem is you can't do it the way you're doing it. Because if you don't kill yourself, all all your avoidance behaviors are just going to create more avoidance. Right? So when you avoid something that you don't want, you get more of it. Right? So... There's a dance I think you do with people that are suicidal that is kind of a combination of I hear that how bad you feel inside. I hear that. I'm not here to argue that you feel anything other than bad inside. And also it's tempting to think about big solutions when you feel this bad. And one of those is killing yourself and 
you know, that certainly is one way that people can take care of this problem. You know, obviously we're here because there might be a little bit of ambivalence about whether you want to do that. Right. But it's, it's definitely something that you could do if you wanted to get out from under how you feel. Um, there's different uh, ways that you can kind of explain things to people, but I usually, you know, there's a little bit of dark humor. Doesn't hurt sometimes. Sure. You know, I'll often say, you know, most people read somewhere in a throwaway magazine that, you know, when you die, you see a blue light, but what if, what if that doesn't happen? You know, we don't really know what it's like to be dead. So you, your mind tells you you're going to be at peace. And you won't have to hurt anymore, but we don't actually know what it's like to be dead because, you know, we conduct research on what it's like to be dead and the dead people don't return the questionnaires. <laughs> it, makes, uh, it makes the research quite hard to do. Yeah. So black humor, you know, get, get us to laugh a little bit. And, you know, it really is kind of behind this. There's a semblance of truth here, which is it's just a social fabrication that being dead is peaceful. We, we don't know, right? But your mind tells you that it knows what it's like to be dead, but it's never been dead. Mm. And this is pretty classic mental uh, jujitsu a la act, you know, the kind of stuff we do in act, which is your mind thinks it knows everything. You know, in a situation like this, your mind knows nothing, basically. Almost everything it's telling you to do in the way of a coping behavior is backfiring. And then it tells you, you're mentally ill because it didn't work. I mean, so in a way, even in the middle of this conversation about what problem would you be solving, you know, you're all, we're also beginning to kind of attack the uh, sanctity of, well, I did it because my mind told me to, you know, and minds are never wrong. And, you know, that, that's the highway to hell right there is to believe minds are never wrong. You're putting suicidality on the table and saying, yes, it, this is a solution that's there at the moment that's being entertained. It, it, it's, a, it's a large one and we're not, we're not discounting that. I'm not even saying that you can't. We're, we're just saying that's one, that, that, yeah. that's a solution. And, and in some sense, there's an ambivalence there. Let's let it sit there on the table, you know, with us. We're not, we're not trying to change it, remove it, contract it out, anything like that. We're just kind of acknowledging it for what it is um, and not having to do, you know, any work in that space. You know, it just sits there and, and, and you know, we've called the elephant out, uh, out of the room. Yeah, and I really believe that if we get into that space and we just sit there, that one of the primary features of a suicidal crisis is feeling like you're alone and that no one is with you you know you're kind of on an island of pain and nobody kind of understands nobody can relate you know you can't relate to yourself other people can't relate to you and so i think sometimes just getting things quiet and you know just talking honestly about you know the pain is painful and you know if i was feeling the kind of pain you're feeling and i had the kind of thoughts you're having i'd probably be thinking about killing myself too I mean, that, that's why so many people think about it. It isn't an accident. So, you know, it isn't some kind of shameful thing that you think about it. It's just recognize its function, you know, kind of what are you 
you know, what are you in the middle of? So that if you do something here, you're doing it really kind of on purpose. It isn't, you're getting dragged into something by your mind that you don't really even understand. And, you know, in suicidal research, there's this sort of phenomenon called tunnel vision, which I think is this sort of cognitive narrowing that if you don't let people open up a little bit, what happens is the pain and the drive to avoid and the urgent signals from the brain and the nervous system to do something narrow the attention down to the point where people literally can't solve. They can't see any other way, right? Even though there might be obvious ways that they could do things right here, right now, they won't see it. So, you know, this cycle of avoidance also artificially narrows attention and recognition so that people on their own are going to get drawn deeper and deeper into this spiral. The more you try to avoid, the more you think about killing yourself, the more painful it gets, but you can see less and less of what's happening because you've lost your sort of attention span. It strikes me, you know, when you're talking about that as, as it almost pulls in the mindfulness aspect of, of, of what ACT is, you know, kind of working with in that if we can see it with greater clarity, we can at least be present in making the decision. So by putting these things on the table, uh, we're mindful, we're deliberate, I think is the word you use, which is, I think, quite, quite elegant. Uh, you know, you can at least deliberately decide rather than decide in uh, desperation, which is impulsivity. Um, you're kind of saying, I want you to, 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 to be present and mindful in, um, uh, in your space and, and in doing so, therefore, be able to make a, a decision that, that's a deliberate one rather than uh, one out of angst and, and, and uh, great intense, you know, desperate hurt. You know, sometimes people will say, do you think I should do it then? And I'll say, hell no. This yeah. is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But if you get to that spot and it's purposeful and it's intentional, I'm not going to stop you, right? I mean, different uh, people get quite upset when I say things like that. I'm not going to orchestrate it. I'm not going to help you kill yourself. But essentially, my job is to help you choose where you want to go on your life path, right? And including not going on your life path. Um, thing I have to offer is I can help you see options that are available to you, see angles that maybe you're not seeing right now. You're the one who's in control of your destiny here. And it's just very interesting when you give people the keys back to their car because suicide kind of robs you of your sense of personal integrity. You've tried to quell your suicidal thinking and it just gets stronger and stronger then you read that people that are suicidal or have mental disorders and you know you you end up losing the keys to your car you're not really steering your own vehicle of life so to speak and but i try to give people back the keys and say you're the driver now you know there's a few things that maybe you didn't see some road signs out there or things that might be intriguing to you and i can kind of help you with um going in some of these alternative directions. You don't have to give up killing yourself. It just means opening yourself up to the fact that maybe I'm missing alternatives. Maybe there are other ways to deal with this, including not running from it. I mean, the bottom line is 
If I didn't have to run from my pain, I wouldn't have to kill myself. So what is it about the pain that feels so overwhelming, so toxic to you, that being dead would be preferable? And most of this is social training. It's just, you know, well, I shouldn't, no one should have to feel this amount of sadness inside. Or, you know, you'll hear things that are basically social uh, conventions, social mores, the things that people are trained. And these are, they're, they're just artificial. Like what, how do you know no one should have to feel this way? I mean, people have been feeling this way since the dawn of time. People have been getting relationships busted up, um, having their children die. I mean, you know, this is um, part of the, the legacy of being human, but, you know, people are trained to regard their own pain as sort of the, an enemy, that there's nothing redeeming in this. It's going to, you know, just be a matter of enduring it and then trying to put it behind me, you know. They don't see pain as something that can teach you about what you're capable of inside, right? So, you know, when pain has no um, social value, so redeeming personal value, then naturally the notion is, well, then just get rid of it. I mean, you're not going to learn anything from it. You're just going to have to go through it and, you know, hope you don't die from it, I guess. And so why, uh, why put up with it? So the stage is kind of set if we can get the, the conversation in the room that this is about getting rid of the pain, right? And that suicide is one way of solving that issue if you want to get rid of pain, but you don't know, necessarily know what you're going to get when you're dead. You just know that your mind says it knows what it's like to be dead, and it doesn't. Um, and so the alternative might be, what if we didn't have to get rid of the pain? What if there is something legitimate, purposeful, and meaningful inside this bubble that you're in? You know, this is probably not just random violence in the universe. Something, something has happened that you cared about. And the reason you're responding with such agony is this mattered to you. This wasn't, if it didn't matter to you, you wouldn't have any feelings about it. So I think we can begin to reframe the whole idea that pain, you know, being in pain is somehow bad and something to be avoided, something to be solved, instead of listening to your pain, going through your pain, you know, looking at uh, the cost of caring is that you can, you, can, you can lose. You know, the cost of loving is that somebody can leave you. The cost of being a parent is that a kid can die in a random, in a, incomprehensible way. There are costs associated with being human, right? And you live in a society that says, you know, everybody gets a hall pass from pain because we have pills for everything. And you don't have to experience pain because it's bad for you. It's, it's just a horrible message. And so to some extent, I view suicidal patients as the poster child for how toxic that message is. It, can, it takes you so far out of touch that you're even willing to kill yourself rather than be human. There's that huge uh, socially reinforced 
statement of you don't have to live with pain, that it's not something that, you know, you should be living with. There's a a way around this. In some sense, it's almost like psychologists have been put into that sphere of if you're feeling pain, see a psychologist, they will remove it for you or they will show you how to reduce it. They're they're the gatekeepers of pain. They know how to remove this stuff. You know, if if I'll give you a pill to start with. If the pill doesn't do it, then we'll bring in the big guns, the psychologists. And if they don't do it, maybe we go to a psychiatrist or whatever it might be. And if all those means are not achieving obviously the uh unachievable uh then that big message has been reinforced for years upon years upon years of just saying you should not be having pain, and it probably starts with something quite minor, as a uh, uh, as a little child. Um, you know, if I if I see my daughter upset because you know um, my other daughter took a toy from her, you know, we as parents might accidentally go out and buy two toys to try and avoid upset and pain rather than actually provide the opportunity for pain and and being able to you know self-soothe and settle uh, and so we we kind of have this reinforcement so the the poster child that you, that you say is kind of like this reinforcement that's happened over for a lot of people probably decades yeah and this is just a uh, particular example but you know you could basically make the same argument that the reason we have in America, we have 26 million alcoholics. Um, it's the same basic message. If it's not okay to be in your skin, if being naturally human, which is a combination of pleasure and pain and everything in between, if that's not okay, then basically people are going to find their way into all kinds of poison. And suicidality is but one of them. Um, and I don't think really a lot of times people have had this conversation. Mm. They're just marching along to the beat of social training. And I've always been quite um, fascinated by how people, how quickly people turn away from this who are acutely suicidal or maybe sometimes chronically suicidal. If we can get into this conversation about where did you learn that f- feeling what you feel inside is bad for you. Where, where did you learn that? You know, and people will turn around and they'll start to look at. That's a deep question. That's a deep question. And it's not a rhetorical question or a blaming question. It's just, where did you learn that? Who told you that? Right. And it's kind of a credible figure asking the question. It's a psychologist. Right. So we're not here to make you feel better today. We're here to talk about where did you learn? that feeling bad inside was bad for you because that's triggering all of this complex of behavior. If it wasn't bad for you, it's not going to be fun, you know, and life isn't always fun, right? It's not, but it isn't the same as being toxic and something that has to be eliminated and something that you have to do something about. The neat thing about acceptance is you don't have to do anything. It's, it's, Energy free compared to the amount of energy people are exerting, trying to avoid, suppress their suicidal thoughts, trying to convince themselves not to do it. 
I mean, they're basically burning themselves at the stake energy-wise. And I'll just say, you know, acceptance requires no energy at all. You don't have to do anything, right? The pain comes from the struggle. It doesn't come from the original source. It's not being willing to have what you have. That's painful because you can't get rid of what you have. You've already got it. And all you're going to do if you try to get rid of it is you're going to get more of it. And that's what turns pain into sort of suffering and trauma and sort of makes it feel so toxic that people have to take these extreme measures. But it could also be, I'm going to go out and shoot up heroin. I'm going to go out and drink. I'm going to go out and have a lot of crazy sex with people I don't know. I'm going to go and eat, right? I mean, my joke sometimes with patients is God gave us an endless number of ways to instantly get rid of our pain. The problem is every single one of them is toxic. <laughs> so it wasn't God that gave it to us. It was the devil, right? Basically. Here, you can feel better instantly if you just do behavior X. The problem is behavior X unwinds your life and makes you unable to have your dreams. It's literally the garden of eating from the tree of knowledge. And so tempting. So tempting. Yes. Is that because the apple is instant? That uh, it, it's juicy, it's instant, I can go out and, and, and taste that. I can get that relief of, of the angst of not knowing what the, the apple tastes like and, and, and so it's kind of going to harass me for a while and I can kind of stop that right now by taking a bite versus the alternate route takes a little bit longer. I, I, I actually have to wait, I have to be patient or, or I have to kind of accept that human condition of, of, you know, wondering, you know, I'm going to have to wonder what that would be like, you know, uh, until that maybe that one day even passes itself. Eating an apple from the tree of knowledge, right? And prior to that time, they don't recognize the difference between male genitalia, female genitalia. There's no me, you, basically, and you're different than me. And the devil basically introduces them to human humanness. Judgment. Right? Judgment. Self-judgment and judgment of others, right? So once you've eaten from the tree of knowledge, you can't go back, right? So God throws them out of the Garden of Eden. And then there's all kinds of mayhem for generations of people killing each other, lusting after each other's wives and children. I mean, you know, it's basically you've unhinged people when you give them the ability to judge themselves and to judge others. I mean, that, that's sort of how I take that metaphor. You know, and acceptance is, is not practicing non-judgment, basically, if you think about it. There's a lot of different terms people will use for it, non-reactivity, but I usually talk about practicing non-judgment. Can you just let something be there without judging it, without trying to categorize it, without trying to make it into something you desire or not, right? So doing that requires you to simply allow it to do what it is, what it does, without your interference, without you playing with it in any way. So you get a suicidal person to basically look at what they've been running from and practice non-judgment, um, you, you're not going to have a suicidal person. 
it isn't, it isn't your feelings made you suicidal. It's your judgment of what it means to have these feelings, you know, and then everything that spins out of that is this is not fair. Other people don't have to do this. I should be able to suppress the way I feel, you know, there's all these judgments that start to kind of intrude into that space. And that's what makes you suicidal. It isn't, Oh, sadness makes you suicidal. It, it doesn't. And that's why if you look at the studies of suicidality, it, it pretty much occurs in all of the mental disorders, even though it's improperly cited as a symptom of depression. Uh, actually, it's just as common in anxiety disorders, in major mental disorders, bipolar disorder. I mean, if you, if you believe in disorders, which I don't necessarily, but across the spectrum, of different kinds of emotional complaints, you see suicidality is every, shows up everywhere. It's probably most prevalent in people who are alcoholics or drug addicts. I mean, so you, you, anytime you sort of look at something and it's sort of showing up everywhere, then you have to kind of look in the common lingo of social training for where is this, where is this being prepared? so that people fall into this trap. So I think that's the approach we like to use. We don't really use a lot of the uh, risk management stuff because it's, if you could sort of imagine how hard it would be, it's not impossible, but it's hard. When your demeanor is casual and you're just talking about, you know, suicide as a way of solving problems and all of a sudden your eyes get beady and your head you start to sweat and you start asking about weapons at home and do you have a plan? And I mean, you know, most everybody knows that archetype. Most suicidal patients get more wound up when you do that. I want to, I want to help people get unwound, right? So they're going to tell me what I need to know during the course of our conversation about their level of risk and what they're going to do. And I've already told them, I'm not going to stop you. This might upset some people who think it's our duty to keep people from choosing their life course. But I think it's part of this sort of demeanor that is casual, conversational. The other person is, you know, the suicidal patient's afraid. You're not afraid. The other person is anxious. You're looking very relaxed, not dismissive but you're just very relaxed and comfortable in this space. I mean, I know what we're talking about here, and maybe you haven't thought about it this way. So when you think about it this way, isn't this kind of what we're doing, right? And when you get people engaged in a conversation about what they're doing, that's the opposite of tunnel vision. You're, you're widening their field of attention right in front of you in the interaction. Yeah, it's, it sounds very inviting. You're inviting them into a deliberate conversation. You're inviting them into mindfulness around suicide. Thank you. I'm not, afraid. I'm not afraid of it, right? So I think psychologists need to kind of do a gut check and kind of talk up to themselves about what is your demeanor like, you know, when somebody who's a high risk walks in the room, do you tighten up? Or do you see this in the big picture of life, which is this is what people do, right? This, people, this person is just doing what they are trained to do by society. So the task isn't to get them to not do something. It's to get them to get awake 
to what their training is so that they can say, oh God, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. I've had people in one session, frequently in one session, are no longer suicide risks in the classic sense. Because they're saying, I didn't realize I was doing that. I didn't see this, right? So in that case, we've done our job. I've done my job as a psychologist, which is I've given you some information that you didn't have access to. I've given you a different way to put the pieces of the puzzle together to, to connect the dots. And maybe this is a more credible way than the way you've been socially trained to do. Because the way you've been socially trained to do ain't working, otherwise you wouldn't be in here, right? I mean, our ace in the hole always is if things were working for the patient, they wouldn't be here. So we know by de facto, by virtue of the fact the person's here, that what they're doing isn't working. So we, and we probably know what it, what it is, right? <clears throat> Feeling bad is bad for me. I have to get rid of the way I feel. I can't get rid of the way I feel. The more I try to get rid of it, the more bad I get. I'm sick of this. Maybe I'm weak. Maybe I deserve to die. Maybe blah, blah, blah. But you can just see the, you know, you can almost play it forward for them and sort of, they'll sort of say, how did you know that? You, how did you know that? That's how it went down. Well, because that's what happens when you avoid something. Just planting those seeds. Yeah. In an open, permissive, caring atmosphere where there isn't any, I'm not practicing any judgment, and I don't want you to practice judgment. Right? So if we could get in a judgment-free zone here, and we just looked at the function of this behavior, the function of that behavior, kind of what shows up in your mind, what, what is your mind telling you to do? It isn't a good or bad thing. It's just learning to watch, not judge, and just kind of see things kind of out there, uh, and just learning to hold still. That's acceptance, really, in a way, right? Practicing non-judgment, holding still psychologically. It's so different to the traditional training that psychologists would be doing, right? You know, we're, we're immediately jumping the gun. Our own anxieties are showing up. We're doing a risk assessment. How long have you had been... Have, been having these thoughts what are the thoughts have you got a plan do you have access to the plan have you tried before has any other family member uh, tried or or succeeded in the past uh you know are you male female age do you drink do you live alone etc etc there's an infinite number of things it's almost like i'm going to judge 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 to ultimately then do what well, the sad thing is when you plug all those things into prediction equations, they don't predict what people are going to do anyway. So it's actually um, about the worst way you could go at a conversation is to gather information that has no predictive or clinical value. It also highlights in some sense models to the client that um, this is something to be afraid of. That, that you, you are right. That you, you shouldn't be having these. We're not. We're not saying that, but we're inadvertently saying that by assessing it. Oh yeah, your behavior is very clearly saying, "I am not okay with this." And you don't have to say, "I'm okay with people committing suicide." To be okay with being in front of a suicidal person, you have to kind of be very clear 
if you're not going to be okay with suicide, then there's going to become a point where you have to say what you're willing to tolerate and what you aren't. So you, you, you're going to be fair about laying out the ground rules, right? I don't think you have to be uh, in the same camp I am where you say purposefully, I'm not going to keep you from doing it. However, you do have to be kind of aware of your own hot buttons and how those may sort of show up in the, your, the pacing of your questioning, just the look in your face, what you seem to be interested in. When the client responds, you know, what do you respond to? What, do you, what are you looking for? Right? So if you're unaware of all those things and you're just afraid, then, you know, you're going to make the client a lot more afraid. And um, you're not going to really prevent anything anyway, because none of these things, there'll be people that will argue with me about this, but I've looked at the primary research and it's very clear, you know, that you might be able to slow down the rate of suicide attempting, but there's no real evidence the psychological interventions prevent suicides proper. Right. So the thing that you're doing all of this behavior around is the one thing it doesn't really stop. Right. And again, I just remind people, you'll hear what you need to hear. If the person feels like you're interested and you're not afraid and you're open and you're non-judgmental, they're going to tell you what you need to hear. You know, they'll tell you, I think I need to go in the hospital. If, they, if somebody says that to me, I'll say fine. Let's go, right? But it's, it's being generated by this person, not me, right? And it, that isn't even really my goal. I mean, I'll often just remind people that going to the hospital isn't necessarily a positive experience either. You know, you might feel like you're safe, but sometimes people feel stigmatized when they go and they feel like this is a turning point and, you know, but it's the other person's beginning to generate alternatives. That's kind of what I'm encouraging functionally. I want you to start generating your own alternatives. What are you going to do instead of sitting at home trying to combat suicidal ideation? What, what are you going to do with your behavior? So we talk about this in the books, you know, the sort of the positive. It's not a no-suicide contract, which has never been shown to prevent suicides, by the way. Um, it's what kind of behavior do you want, wish to engage in at the time when you would normally be sitting around suicide-eating, right? Because if you get passive and then you sort of isolate yourself, you know what your mind is going to do, right? So let's figure out what you're going to do instead of that. So you can think about suicide while you're walking on the beach or playing Frisbee with your kid. But most of the time, people don't think about suicide in those kinds of situations, right? So we call it sort of the positive behavior action plan. We're never really saying explicitly we want you not to think about suicide. We're saying explicitly we want you to do something that you're, you construe as a positive behavior for yourself, right? So it could be a pro-social behavior. It could be exercise. It could be going to a movie. It could be whatever. But when you do it, it's sort of kind of in the direction of living, not to prevent yourself from dying, but it's just simply I'm kind of moving in the direction of living right now. 
you know, 24 hours from now I could be dead. I mean, it's almost like the question of uh, if you weren't having suicidal thoughts or these feelings, what would you be doing? And yeah, yeah. And that allows for, for that um, alternate view. Um, and you can kind of then take your suicidality for a walk. Yeah. Well, that's a very nice way to get at that same feature, right? Tell me what it would look like if you weren't being swamped mm, mm. hours on end during the day by thinking about killing yourself. What would you be doing different? What would you be doing instead as a way to kind of begin to look at alternative behavior paths? Again, this sort of widening, you don't notice the function yeah, though. Yeah. Widening the attention span, widening the field of attention, I think is central as sort of a core process, right? That you're not going to be looking at things narrowly. You're going to be starting to look at things more expansively. You're going to be looking at a broader picture about how things are put together. And that shift, I think, is uh, the nail in the coffin for suicidality. It, it really relies on you becoming almost single-minded in your focus, that I'm going to keep avoiding harder and harder and harder until I die, right? And when we reverse that and open it up, we don't really have to talk about specifically okay, you're not going to kill yourself now, right? It's, it's implicit. You know, once you see more options available to you, people don't kill themselves because they think they've got lots of options. They, they kill themselves because they think they have no options. Mm. So once you're doing things differently in terms of your field of attention, you're out there behaving, you know, even in the first hours in a crisis, um, I found that people, if you get real specific and talk about, you know, what would be a positive behavior, not necessarily something that keeps you from killing yourself, but just something that's a positive behavior. It has a positive valence to it. it if you did it, it would, be, it would be somewhat reinforcing. The people will do that. I mean, people that, you know, you're, you might be, uh, be feeling very queasy when they come in the office by the time you you get done they will go forth and do stuff they they don't have a plan other than fighting the way they feel mm, mm, mm. so yeah we want to undo fighting the way you feel but we also want to remember we got to give them a plan right i want you to do this instead of that right this is going to come across better for your psychology than doing that You've got a lot of experience with that. You know what it feels like. You know how it ends. We don't need to go there and experiment with that one, right? What we don't know is what would happen if you tried it behavior of Y or behavior Z. And let's talk about things that are intriguing to you as behavior Ys or Zs. And then go out and experiment and see how that feels. In act in fact more in fact than act but um we talk about you know the therapist's job is to create behavior variability where there is none right so from a functional perspective people come in because their behavior has become excessively narrow formulaic and repetitive and it doesn't work it's not working behavior but it's getting 
narrower and narrower, and this isn't just for suicidality. I think this is true for why people come in to see therapists, why they cross that bridge. So if I just said the biggest thing you're dealing with is somebody who doesn't vary their behavior in situations that absolutely require you to vary your behavior. Mm, mm. You know, if you feel um, devastated because your spouse left you, you have to experiment with different ways of being devastated and learning how to, learning how to be devastated right, in a way that turns out to be productive. So if you s stop varying your behavior, which is what suicidality does, right, instead of trying different things and seeing, well, man, I felt a little bit different that when I did that. Mm -hmm. Going to that, you know, community forum where I met somebody and talked to them for a while, it felt a little bit different than how it felt when I'm at home locked in my room with the lights turned out, thinking about how I'm gonna kill myself, right? If we don't get behavior variability, then we're not doing our job as therapists. I mean, that, that's all, and if you can get people trying different things, then A, their attention span has to widen in order to look at the consequences of these different behaviors are spread across your uh, field of attention. Right. And so we know that's good from a management of suicidal behavior perspective. And people will usually find things relatively quickly that feel better than simply being paralyzed with angst. It's that same message of going from uh, that narrow focus of, you know, rumination of I need to remove this pain to breadth uh, and in, in some sense the the narrowness here has become the narrowness of behavior whether it be the narrow behavior of um, I find myself now not going to work and staying in bed and you know getting out of bed watching a little bit of television uh, staying indoors um, saying no to social events going back to bed ruminating more throughout the day and rinse yeah. repeat and that narrowness in in, in and of itself if, if you were to chuck myself or yourself in a room and, and and did that over and over you and i even if we weren't initially um you know uh suicidal we would probably start to have thoughts like that because we would say i, I can't live like this you know maybe, maybe there is a better solution to, to to this which is the ultimate solution uh, at least the mind will entertain that um, because the context has actually become very narrow too um, by virtue of those decisions. I love it when clients say, I can't live like this anymore. I love, I love it as a pickup line. <laughs> but I call it pickup line because I'll say, what do you mean like this? Describe to me what like this is, right? And what we're going to hear is basically what you described, doing the same thing over and over again, even though it doesn't work, right? And blaming it, not blaming the strategy because your mind never takes the blame for anything. <laughs> blaming me, you know, that I'm even worse off than I thought I was. You know, other people can make this work, you know. And so we're going to get reduced 
behavior variability. And I would say you could take that into a session with almost any kind of problem, right? I mean, if you were just saying, the reason this person's here is their behaviors become excessively narrow in a life context where it has to be broad and flexible. Then we're just going to find out what is the narrow, what is the form of the narrow behavior? It would be true with anxiety, depression, OCD. I mean, you know, just walk through. And what you'll see is when people repetitively do the same thing, they narrow their repertoires, they lose their ability to accidentally find reinforcers in the world. And it sort of sets off a spiral because as you lose reinforcers, in the world, you become less motivated to seek reinforcers. You don't become more motivated, right? So basically, it's a self-stoking process once it gets started, whether it's anxiety, drugs, or alcohol. If you look at it functionally, it's always the behavioral repertoire gets excessively narrow and rigid, and it just gets rigider, right? And the loss of contact with reinforcers kind of improperly balance it creates an imbalance between negative reinforcement and then our natural ability to find countering you know sort of counter agents mm -hmm. so this is sort of more like a stress diathesis uh model meaning um there's a sort of dynamic tension right between the amount of negative reinforcement that you're going to get as a human being, you're going to get it pretty much no matter what you do. And then your ability to kind of balance that by finding positive reinforcement and keeping your behavior flexible because negative reinforcers invite you into the house of rigidity. What you learn when you are under the, the power of negative reinforcement is you, your behavior becomes really rigid. Right. And when your behavior is more under the power of positive reinforcement or repetitive control, it becomes far more exploratory. Right. So think of positive reinforcement as sort of the elixir. And that's why when we work with suicidal patients, we don't just send them home understanding that this is just a form of emotional avoidance behavior, but I want you to actively go looking for some sources of positive reinforcement. Introducing variability to, 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 to then, be, you know, uh, create an opportunity for uh, that insight to occur, a different feedback loop to naturally occur post, post um, variability or, you know, a new, new comfort zone to, you know, some, some, some um, seeds have been sown, some further exploration, you know, the, the, the mind has opened up a bit. You know, and I think people who are locked in on um, preventing suicide often sort of think, well, once I've got that done, we're done, right? <laughs> but the problem that brought this person in is a real problem. This is yes. not. So, you know, you're basically just dealing with a symptom of, of reduced behavior variability. This is. This is what happens, right? And the particular form this one takes is it's an avoidance behavior by, it's an emotional avoidance, right? But it's rigid, it's formulaic, right? And so just because you stopped that doesn't mean 
you know, doves flew out of the box, God showed up in the heavens, all's right with the world, it means this person still has some major friggin' problems that they have to deal with, right? And it's, I've seen a lot of times where psychologists get very laxed when they feel like the risk is done, that they, their job is done. When in fact, you know, the risk isn't really the job in the first place. When you, when you need to get busy is when the person's behavior starts to vary. We need to help this person vary it even more and find what works better, right? I mean, so we're kind of working right into that um, positive ratio, right? Between you're going to have to, you're going to have to eat some crow here at the American, say, right? Uh, you're going to have to take some medicine you don't like here and because if you you get attached to somebody, they can they can divorce you, right? I mean, they can fall in love with somebody else. So, and when that happens, you got to you got to uh, be willing to pay pay the piper, right? There's different ways to pay the piper, right? And one way makes you weaker, smaller as a person, makes it feel more traumatic. The other way is God, I didn't like, I wouldn't volunteer to go through that again but i learned a lot about myself while i was doing it like i learned i could actually cope with feeling really bad inside you know and i could even have doubts about my ability to cope that i could that i could cope and i i was still able to cope so even when i doubted myself i was able to do it i mean so those are really really important life lessons those are things that are going to come uh they're going to come in very handy as you continue to kind of move down. You know, imagine the next relationship you get in if you're only concerned about not getting hurt. You're going to have nothing but dysfunctional relationships. I mean, they're sort of this. It's of pleasure, the loss of joy, the loss of opportunity, you know, because it's a fear-based rather than saying, hey, let's, let's grab this relationship and, and, and squeeze the juice out of it because there's so much in there. Uh, and, you know, if I get hurt along the way, um, I, I will get through because I know I can get through. Um, in the meantime, let's, um, you know, put another record on and, and enjoy what we've got and embrace this. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to happen. So you either sign up to play the game of life or you don't, right? And I think you can actually get there, you know, suicidal people, you know, pretty much any client, if they start to understand, you can't just select the things that you want to have happen to you. And the most meaningful things that happen in your life are the where you could fail, you could get uh, rejected, you could have a major disappointment. Those, th those are the things that have a lasting value for us. Not because we did get rejected or we did get disappointed, but because we were willing to take that risk. And maybe sometimes we did get nailed, right? And when you get nailed, you don't, it doesn't feel good. So then there's a fork in the road here. What are you going to do when you don't feel good inside, right? And what we want to encourage is stay flexible, right? Stay open. Don't judge. Um, you can say, I don't like the way I feel inside. That doesn't mean it's bad or it's good or it's fair or unfair. It just is what it is. And keep your eyes focused on the other things that matter, which are going to pull you 
out into behavior variability again. You're going to kind of you're going to keep exploring because there's more than one thing that matters to you. All right. When you get in that really narrow path of avoidance behavior, the only thing that matters to you is how you feel right now. It's just so striking the behavior variability. I've I've, I've never heard it described that way, and 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 it's so eloquent. And and I'll never. Uh, the, this has honestly changed um, the way that I look at at uh, my clients, whether whether we're talking about suicidality or, or any other behaviour, uh, to kind of observe and think about, you know, even in, even in my own life, you know, where, where I'm probably most unhappy is, is where I'm doing the same damn thing and I haven't tried anything. I haven't even explored. I haven't looked at it. You know, it's, it's exactly what you're saying going from this rumination or the same pattern of thinking where you're narrow narrow-minded, narrow-focused to, you know, uh, when did you first, you know, uh, find that out or hear that information that it's not okay to feel this way, you know, you know so you, you just start to explore and, 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 and look wider for, you know, greater variability in, in, in behavior. That's just, um, you know, uh, for me, so, so insightful. It's, I've just never heard it that way. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful way to, to try and understand a little bit more about you know, where these things, uh, you know, experiences are coming from. Yeah, I think it's important to breed, you know, curiosity. And actually a slight tone of amusement, not condescension. Yes. But it is funny, it is funny uh, how we get taught things that we don't even realize we were taught. And then at the most important moment in life, this thing that we got taught that we didn't even know we got taught starts to determine the outcome. Yes. Right? And it, isn't it amusing that that's, you know, and the, and the way out of that is you have to stop believing your mind. I mean, I mean, it's basically not disregarding your mind, but just not believing it in certain areas. But being curious about what would happen if, you know, what would, is also the beginning of behavior variability. When I talk to people about varying their behavior, that's how I'll usually put it. What would happen? What do you think would happen if you tried this? And the person would say, I don't know. Well, would you be willing to try and see? That's the beginning of behavior variability. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I don't, I don't know what would happen either. And so we'll never actually know what's going to happen until you go out and do that behavior, will we? So the Behavior might work. It might be a positive thing. It might be a neutral thing. It might be something we don't want to do again. But we're never going to know until we go out and do it because your mind has absolutely no idea. It thinks it can predict the future and it thinks it can read uh, tea leaves. But in fact, it has no idea what's going to happen. I love the way that you talk about it in that way. That that kind of does go out and, and hold it lightly, you know, that, that it, it's reading tea leaves. It's an elegant way. And, and uh, I, I think that this discussion around suicidality and, and, you know, a real different perspective of how to, you know, work with uh, others. And, and I think the applications are much greater than just suicidality. So I think there's, there's a lot that our listeners can, can uh, get from this. Can I um, ask you where can our listeners find out more about you know this work and, and, and other works of yours? Because I think uh, there, there's 
you know, I'd love to be able to be on the podcast for another six hours with you, but I'll have to invite you on for another another chat, maybe about the um, uh, your works with the you know active psychiatry for for another episode. But uh, how can people find out more about you know the work that we've discussed today? Uh, you can go to my website. It's www.heartmattersconsulting.com. Heart matters. Heartmatters.com. And if you want to uh, specifically look for the suicide book, it's available uh, at American Psychiatric Publishing. That's the publishing arm of the American Psychiatric Association. So if you just Google www. I think it's app.org, you should see American Psychiatric Publishing. You can get access to the book that way. But there's a link in my website to that, uh, the APP website, if you want to use the other avenue. And the website also keeps people apprised of new book projects that are coming out. We talk a little bit about the Acton Psychiatry book that will be coming out early in 2020. It's actually in the editing process right now. And uh, I'm just getting ready to write another book with my daughter, my 30 two-year-old daughter it's going to be a censored title because it's unfuck yourself (laughs) (laughs) stars in the middle (laughs) learning to live with the intolerable pressure of being alive yeah well kind of a self-help book for people that are just fed up with the social bullshit training that we're getting on how to be human so that's in the uh, process of being written right now. So the first book that'll come out will be the Acton Psychiatry book next, early next year, I'm guessing. A nice thing about that book, by the way, is that we will also have a instructional video library attached to it. So we'll actually have a lot of um, demonstration of core act skills that are pertinent to the practice of psychiatry. But really, if you watch these interactions they are basic they work for any therapist would benefit from them and they're they come with the book so if you buy the book you have access to the instructional videos something i've never actually done before in a book project and i'm kind of intrigued to see how that works out i'm really looking forward to uh each of those new additions to your library of books that that, that you've written um and, and and particularly you know your your project with your with your daughter um i think i think there's there's a lot of um, you know, value in, in, in going out and keeping this conversation up about you know, broadening variability in, in our thoughts and our you know, behaviours and, 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 and acceptance of feelings and the like. So you know, I think uh, you know, what you had to say today, I, I think is absolutely brilliant. And, and you know, I can't thank you enough about sharing this, you know, not, not only in this podcast, but in, in, in your book. So I'm going to have to uh, invite you to a sneaky invite for uh, another one of the uh, uh, books later on because uh, I'd love to be able to pick your brain again. It, it, it's just been absolutely brilliant. And I do want to give a shout out to one of my co-authors on the Acton Psychiatry book, Rob Percy, who's a psychiatrist. In Brisbane, yes. I know, Rob. Yeah, he does some of the videos in the demonstration. Just, just does a wonderful job demonstrating the matrix in a psychiatric interview context. Um, so he's, he's been marvelous to work with. And, um, he, he will be a, a player 
in the Australian psychiatry scene when the book comes out. Yeah, fantastic. And I know that Rob, Rob has always been, uh, you know, ahead of the game in terms of, uh, at least in my mind, in terms of, you know, marrying those two worlds up of, of acceptance and, you know, uh, functional, you know, prescribing of medication. And, and you know, it, it's a slippery, it's a very slippery sort of context because, you know, what we prescribe for and what someone hears are two different things or evolves over time. So um, it, it's a very interesting sort of space. So. Um, looking forward to that one coming out. Yep, it'll be fun. Kirk, once again, thank you very, very much, and um, I hope uh, I can I can nab you to have another another chat at some time in the future. I'd be delighted. Thanks. Okay, take care. You too. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe. Share it via social media and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.